Welcome, everybody. This is Volts for April 15th, 2022. Volts podcast, Elizabeth Pop Berman on the economic style of thinking that consumed U.S. policy. I'm your host, David Roberts. Back when I started paying attention to climate policy discussions in the mid-2000s, one thing I immediately noticed is how keen mainstream environmentalists were to develop and champion market-friendly policies, the kind of policies that harnessed competition and choice and incentives. Everyone in center-left policy discussions seemed to be constantly auditioning for some imagined panel of economists. They were desperate to pass muster. In part, it could be explained as a response to conservatives who by then had mainstreamed the myth that command and control environmental regulations are unduly burdensome. <clears throat> Parentheses. In fact, the environmental regulations put in place in the 1960s and 70s are some of the most successful in U.S. history, producing benefits wildly in excess of their costs saving millions of lives in a way that arguably boosted rather than hampered economic growth. Close parentheses. Environmentalists were keen to find bipartisan solutions to build a consensus from the center out, and they thought that the emphasis on market-based policies would attract support from Republicans. Spoiler, it did not. But it wasn't a purely defensive move. There was a sincere enthusiasm for the project of treating climate change like an equation to be solved in the most efficient way possible, like math, bypassing the agonizing issues of political economy and sidelining mushy subjective talk of values and rights. It wasn't imposed on the center-left. The center-left embraced and internalized it. That has changed somewhat, but not all that much, and it may end up constraining Biden just like it constrained Obama. So imagine my surprise as I looked through sociologist Elizabeth Pop Berman's new book, Thinking Like an Economist, How Efficiency Replaced Equality in U.S. Public Policy. It turns out this kind of thinking, what Berman calls the economic style of reasoning, has taken over not just environmental policy, but the entire U.S. policy bureaucracy to dismal results. It's as much something Democrats have done to themselves as anything forced by the right. One always enjoys having one's priors validated by scholars of much greater distinction than oneself, so I was delighted to read the book, and equally delighted to chat with Berman about the economic style, how it came to dominate, and what might come after. Without further ado, Elizabeth Pop Berman, uh, congratulations on your book and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be with you. I'm so fascinated by <laughs> by this subject, and I was reading through your book, and I kept having this like whatever that feeling is when your priors are reaffirmed <laughs> by someone with way better credentials than you. I kept I kept having that feeling over and over again. Well, I, I remember reading the uh, blog post you did a few months ago about uh, economic pundits. Oh, <laughs> yes. reading that at the time, and I was like, ah, he's already said everything I have to say. <laughs> yes, yes. We're on the same wavelength, only you did uh, actual research. So your book is about the economic style, the economic style of thinking and how it came to dominate in 
the U.S. And, uh, you know, we'll say more about what that style of thinking is. But to a first approximation, it means thinking like a microeconomist in domains outside economics. Right. <laughs> so with that sort of on the table, let's tell kind of the origin story first. Sort of when did this style of thinking rear its head in the U.S.? And what was its what did its march to dominance look like? Well, Economists have been around a long time in government, obviously, but the economic style of thinking that I'm talking about really kind of begins to to take off in the 1960s. And it comes into Washington from a couple of different places. But one of the big places is um, a bunch of economists from the Rand Corporation, uh, right, in Santa Monica. Mm -hmm. And they are brought into Washington uh, by Robert McNamara in order to rationalize the Defense Department and defense budgeting, basically. And so they move from there and sort of spread into a lot of different parts of government. And uh, that's at least one big strand of the of the origin story. These were uh, Kennedy's golden boys or whatever. There's a whole like mythology whiz around kids. these people. Yeah, whiz yeah, kids. Yeah, it. whiz kids. Yeah, no. And and I have to say, you know, my whole life I had heard of the term of the whiz kids. I did not have any idea they were they were economists, uh, you know, until I, I started actually studying this. But that's who they were and what they were doing. Yes, and have subsequently recorded entire documentaries uh, apologizing <laughs> right. for, all the things they, for all the things they did. A anyway, so, okay, the whiz kids uh, were economists. I did not actually know that either. And then uh, the second big strand is sort of a looser network of economists who worked on uh, what's called industrial organization. So they're interested in things like how, how specific markets work. So, you mm -hmm. know, there would be people who study uh, the petroleum industry or the railroad industry uh, and are interested in, in thinking about those markets and, and what makes them more or less efficient. And so there you have some people who are coming from Harvard, some people who are coming from the University of Chicago, and they also sort of start to trickle into Washington during the 1960s as well. And so they end up having a lot of influence in the following decade around debates over things like uh, deregulation of transportation and, and other mm. sectors. And then you say sort of uh, from like 1970 forward they kind of start branching out uh, like kudzu <laughs> into yeah. other uh, other areas of policy. How, what did that look like? Where did they go? Yeah, I mean, the way I came to think of this over the course of, of writing this was um, that they really spread in a lot of ways, you know, economic thinking really spread because of a lot of the expansion that government did in the, in the 60s. And mm -hmm. it's sort of a reaction to that. Uh, right. And so you've got all the expansions of the Great Society Following that, you've got this whole wave of social and environmental regulation that comes to pass. And it prompts this reaction also of, okay, well, we, we're spending all this. How do we do it more effectively? How do we do it more efficiently? And that ends up circulating a lot of both economists and people who are sort of trained in the basics of economics into many locations within government and many different kinds of policy spaces. Right. So government's expanding, getting more ambitious. And and it's interesting, you sort of, again, have the two groups. You have the sort of one group that's like, government's doing these great things. Let's make sure it does them as well as it can. And then you have kind of another group that's like, government's doing all these new things. Let's expose the fact that government's not very good at doing these things and it does them inefficiently so right. we can make the government do fewer things. Uh, kind of coming from both directions. Yeah, and and really, I mean, I try to focus. I mean, I think most of my story is about 
you know, the economists who wanted to make government better, right? Right. You know, a lot of people have talked about the Chicago School and, you know, people who were real strong free marketeers and really wanted to limit government. But, you know, the bulk of this movement and and sort of the, the most driving force behind it came from the people who thought government was doing important things, but just wanted to make it work better and wanted to make it more efficient. There's a really great uh, sort of case study here. It highlights this difference really well. Um, and that is the original sort of Clean Air Act of 1970, the big one. And then the amendments of 1990. And this is a good way of illustrating, I think, it's sort of funny, the economic style of thinking as applied to policy has in some sense become so ubiquitous, kind of such a default, that I, I honestly think that some sort of interested people might have trouble envisioning what the alternative is. Like, you know, right. it's like seems right. so, it seems so uh, foundational that it's, it's hard to imagine what else you could do. So th- I feel like this case study is a good way of exposing kind of what the differences could be. So, uh, you know, as, as you say, the 1970 Clean Air Act more or less put aside <laughs> the economic style or was not yet overtaken by the economic style. And the 1990 Clean Air Act amendments were thoroughly out of the economic style. So sort of tell us a little bit about that contrast and what it shows about the alternatives. Well, uh, the economic style came a little bit later to environmental policy than it did to some other areas. So, you know, by 1970, it had not had much of a footprint. Mm-hmm. And so when you have the Clean Air and the, and the Clean Water Acts being debated, you know, they're really coming from a place that is, you know, one, it's, it's driven by social movements, it's still pretty centered in ideas about ecology and the need to deal with you know, pollution as a problem because everything is interdependent and things have these downstream effects. It is centered really around moral claims that pollution is wrong, it's bad, we shouldn't allow people to do it. And it was also based on a different theory of politics that you know, we really need strong rules in order to prevent regulatory capture. So it was written on purpose to minimize attention to costs. In a lot of areas, there's no attention to costs at all. Mm-hmm. And that was for a reason. And, and one of my favorite things is a, a little book written by an economist a few years later looking back at this who subtitled his book about the Clean Water Act, Why No One Listened to the Economist, right? So there was, <laughs> there was that little influence in it. Yeah, I feel like people don't uh, appreciate this. This is something I've written about a bunch of times too, but like the structure of the Clean Air Act, you know, if you sort of strip it down to its essence, it basically says Americans have a right to healthy air and government from this point forward should do whatever is required to ensure that the air is healthy, right? I mean, that's, right. it doesn't say as much as is economically, you know, prudent. It doesn't really, uh, the cost barely comes up at all. It really is framed in terms of kind of core rights. It's funny ever since then to kind of watch the U.S. system of government try to squeeze out of that, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, so, yeah. uh, it's so unusual for a law to be so categorical and sweeping. And you've kind of sort of seen ever since other parts of the government and like the Supreme Court and all these institutions kind of be like, well, do we have to? Does it say, <laughs> you know, but, yeah, it no, really, the whole, but the, the law is sweeping. Yeah, the whole history of environmental policy since then is in a lot of ways efforts to step back from that and say, OK, OK, we have to weigh costs. How are we going to weigh costs? You know, and that's and that's a very different way of thinking about the problem, which just wasn't part of the original legislation. 
But let's say before we leave that behind, I mean, you wouldn't want to say that the writers of this law genuinely didn't care <laughs> about, right. about costs. You know, there's a, there are reasons that they don't put cost concerns in there. And some of those had to do with regulatory capture, as you say. Um, and some, I think, had to do with like, we can't know what it would cost to do what we want to do, right? You know, it's like, we want to go to the moon. How much will it cost? Well, no one knows. But like, we're confident that if we set this goal, we can do it. It was sort of that kind of thinking. Right. And so I think there was a lot more modesty at the time about what we could reasonably calculate and also a lot more uh, resistance to certain kinds of quantifications, right? Like there was a lot of resistance to the idea that you could place a value on human life and use that as a guide for weighing costs and benefits. And so things like that took a long time to become accepted as well. Before we move on, just say briefly why like this issue of regulatory capture, like what is the thinking that if you introduce cost considerations or put them in statute, that will open the door to regulatory capture? How does that work? The whole idea of cost-benefit analysis is that it sounds like something that is pretty straightforward, that you're tallying up the costs and tallying up the benefits and sort of comparing the difference between the two. But, you know, the real challenge of this is that the devil is in the details and there's no simple way to account for costs or benefits. So any decisions that you make are going to involve many, many, many assumptions about who's being affected, Mm -hmm. what the cost of those effects are, and so on. And so it really creates a bigger opportunity for people who have a stake in the game to try to ensure that their preferred methods of calculating costs and benefits are going to be the ones that are taken into account. Right. And historically, it's often been industry interests that have had a lot of money and a lot invested in making sure that costs are very, very apparent and are being counted you know, as, as expansively as possible. And that can be one way that a cost-benefit analysis that's intended to be neutral can, in effect, kind of tilt the playing field towards the people who have the most resources to devote to ensuring that the costs are counted and the benefits are not. Right, the people who can afford to employ full-time lobbyists and economists. Right, exactly. (laughs) Whose whole job is to game the system. So then that brings us to the 1990 Clean Air Act amendments, which are just, you couldn't come up with a better example of the economic style having completely inserted itself. So what's the difference there? Well, the core sort of centerpiece program of those amendments was the acid rain program. And the acid rain program was the first large scale cap and trade program. And so here the idea is that we're going to figure out how to reduce acid rain by uh, giving people permits for pollution and allowing them to trade them with one another and, you know, use this market mechanism to lower the amount of pollution that's happening overall. And so it's really oriented towards how do we solve this regulatory problem? You know, how do we solve this environmental problem that in many ways isn't so different from the kinds of problems that the earlier legislation was, was trying to solve, but let's do it in a way that's as efficient as possible. And in many ways, it was successful, but it also uh, was based on a much different and uh, more limited, I think, vision of what the range of policy options might actually be. Mm -hmm. And man, did it serve as a, I mean, when you talk to people about the style of policy, that's the one they all go to, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, it served as sort of a model for lots and lots of other programs and lots of arguments for programs that never happen, right? Right. So how do we distinguish this? Because, you know, there's this common critique on the left about neoliberalism, 
basically, about this idea of sort of, I think that in the popular imagination, it goes something like, you know, liberals were ascendant in the post-war period, and then they overreached, and government got too big and sloppy, and there was this backlash from the right. And in the face of the backlash, Democrats sort of became Republican light. They became, uh, and this is how I think most people think of neoliberalism as how can we accomplish these things we want to do as Democrats, but with, you know, markets and, and hardcore cost benefit analysis and, and the kinds of things that would pass muster with economists. That's, I think, what people think of as neoliberalism. How do you distinguish the economic style of thinking as you are thinking and writing about it from just this larger question of neoliberalism? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the basic outlines of that story are correct in many ways. Um, and that there are these larger sort of global economic forces that are changing the political environment in the 1970s. I mean, you know, I'm not suggesting that in the absence of economists, Democrats never would have uh, moved to the center and, and none of the political <laughs> changes that we that we saw happen would have happened. But what I think is important here is that understanding this economic style of reasoning sort of helps us understand how this shift that was, you know, taking place for reasons of its own really gets built into all these different parts of governments in ways that make it very durable and very lasting. And so having this ideology, sort of a, a, a technical ideology that helps to uh, justify these kinds of arguments and that really is built into policymaking in many different ways means that by the time the 90s roll around, it's not just that Democrats have moved to the left, it's that the whole range of policy options that are kind of considered within the pale have been constrained. Mm -hmm. And that's because, you know, that everywhere in Washington, this new way of thinking has kind of become the default, become the norm. And so, so the way I see it is that that story is basically true, but economic reasoning is sort of the channel through which this, the shift became durable. At one point, you make about this, which I which I think is really fascinating and important, and in some ways probably the most important part of the book, is sort of the traditional story is that the right revolted against liberal government and sort of they went right and the left kind of got dragged along to the middle. But one of the points you make, you know, I'll, I'll quote here from the book. Uh, it says, over and over again, the economic style was introduced to policymaking by technocrats associated with the Democratic Party who wanted to use the government to solve social problems. You say this is not, first and foremost, a story of right-wing economists pushing for smaller government and freer markets. So th the extent to which this was sort of a native phenomenon in democratic circles and not just sort of a reaction to the right, I think is not well understood. So talk about that a little bit. I agree. This is one of the big takeaways of, of the book. I think that it's important you know, for people on the left to really contend with the way that a lot of, of the current way that we, we think about policy you know, did emerge from political debates that were basically you know, the happening on the left. And so, you know, what I see happening here is that, you know, you've got this period in the 1960s where a lot of government is doing a lot of big things. And yes, you know, that does cause a right-wing backlash. And, you know, as you suggested, that's kind of a standard part of the story. Um, but it also creates all this demand for ways to manage it. And sometimes it's about um, making it more cost-effective. Um, but sometimes it's just about trying to figure out how are we actually technically going to do all the stuff that we've agreed to do. So, you know, we've 
created these environmental laws, you know, how do we actually implement that? You know, we've created new kinds of housing policy. Um, how are we actually going to put that into action? And so you have a real expansion of people who have, um, you know, either training in economics or often uh, later it's in, in public policy programs that kind of have a broadly microeconomic orientation mm-hmm. um, who, who are, you know, their role in government expands a lot. And what they end up doing is, you know, they're often trying to, again, figure out how to make policy more cost effective, figure out how to make government work better. Um, but what you see in practice is, repeatedly over and over, you kind of get these alliances between people who are kind of working within this economic framework who are sort of center left, again, kind of technocrats, but who end up forming alliances with the right. So whether that's with you know industry groups who are advocating for less environmental protection, or if it's uh, people who are advocating for a more conservative position on healthcare reform, that that's where you really get these interesting alliances that I think have lasting consequences. Yeah. And God, this is just something I've seen play out exactly as you describe in environmental circles and climate and climate circles, especially. And one of the things <laughs> that always has struck me about it and, and, and you sort of get into this is that it's kind of a one way ratchet. Like the right is happy to, you know, make these revisions toward greater efficiency when they serve the right's goals. But the right is also perfectly willing to ignore economic yeah. thinking when it doesn't serve its goals. So in a sense, like you get a one-way ratchet just moving farther and farther kind of towards the industry side because, as you say, quote, the economic style constrained Democrats while Republicans used it strategically. So say a little bit about how that dynamic has has taken shape. You know, I think that's a nice, concise summary of it. I think really... You know, you see this really emerging as early as the 1970s with Democrats, and I think particularly during the Carter administration, uh, where there's a real internal debate over uh, regulatory reform. Mm -hmm. And you have within the Carter administration, you have people who are sort of more on the either economists aligned with economics, people sort of on one particular side who are really arguing for more cost effectiveness analysis of regulation. Um, and then you've got people who are more aligned with the environmental movement or uh, social movement groups who are arguing against that and for retaining uh, sort of more strict regulation that isn't necessarily taking costs into account. You know, and so here, here's an instance where, again, you have the people who want to take costs into account are able to ally with uh, supporters from industry, right. um, supporters from the right, shift policy a little bit. and the position that had been kind of the status quo among Democrats, you know, five or 10 years before, sort of becomes marginalized. And that increasingly becomes uh, a position that's beyond the pale because, you know, it's only reasonable that we're going to take costs into account. How can you think about policy without having (laughs) costs, right? Cast is a little bit silly, right? And naive. Right, exactly. Exactly. But what you don't see is that's not what you see happen at all when Reagan comes in. And Reagan is really good about this because there's areas where he absolutely promotes economics, he hires economists, he expands economics offices and other places where he slashes them. And so, you know, you see this in um, antitrust policy, for example, the status quo in economics at the time was arguing for reduced enforcement of antitrust. That was sort of the line of thinking that was ascendant. 
so Reagan expanded the economics office in the antitrust division and at the FTC. And that was happening at the same time that the rest of the agency was being cut. And so, you know, if economics is going to support the larger goal, which is let's have less restrictions on business, then by all means, let's, let's go ahead and do it. But in other areas, in, for example, some of these social policy areas where Reagan's political position was basically, we should just have less of this stuff. You know, we should have less welfare programs, less uh, sort of social welfare. For ideological reasons, not because they're inefficient. Right, right, exactly. And so the economist who worked in that area, he saw mostly as trying to justify something that shouldn't exist anyway, right? They're trying to make it more cost effective when really what we should just not have it. Right. And so in those, in those spaces, economics offices are just sort of decimated. Yes, this is such a familiar and frustrating story is Democrat, sort of the technocrats, seize on these principles and procedures and take them seriously and really get into them and and are constrained by them, whereas you just see on the right so clearly that they're used instrumentally, right? They're just used when they line up with ideological goals, and when they don't, they don't. And it's, it's always vexing because on the one hand, you want to admire and encourage intellectual consistency, don't you? Or like... <laughs> You don't want to encourage hypocrisy, but on the other hand, politically, it sure looks like hypocrisy is working way better for them than consistency is working for uh, for Democrats. Right. And I think one thing that is important to keep in mind and that you know, Democrats often don't necessarily start with is that you know, sort of an economic approach to policy problems is not a great starting point for negotiation, right? If you want to achieve some kind of policy goal because um, you care about climate change because you want to ensure universal access to healthcare, you know, whatever the goal is, you know, presumably the underlying reason is some kind of moral claim. And, you know, right. yes, it, you know, of course, like any kind of time you're dealing with an actual real world policy problem, you know, you're quickly going to get to the question of, of costs and you want policy to be cost effective. But, but, but moral claims tend to be much more politically effective. And they also tend to lead to more ambitious ideas. You know, whereas if you start with, what is going to be the most um, efficient kind of policy design that we can come up with? You know, it's both a bad starting point for negotiation and uh, often tends to not be very uh, politically appealing either, right? And, you know, think of like Obama's healthcare exchanges. You know, healthcare exchanges are not like a great rallying cry to bring the masses on on board for your program. Right. This is, God, this is so true. It's like, who are they trying to please? (laughs) You know, like... With all this kind of economist envy is is the way I've referred to it many times in the past. It's as though these people within these center-left groups are seeking the approval of people on the other side of the aisle. But like, why? The public doesn't care. The public doesn't care about cost-benefit analysis. I mean, let's be serious. You could tell the public whatever you want about it. It's like you're trying to get good grades or something. It's like you're trying to be the teacher's pet, but it's not politically getting you anything. Right. It's maddening. Let's look at um, the the antitrust case is is sort of interesting. So, you know, the old, I guess the paleolithic now uh, Mm -hmm. uh, take on antitrust was just too big is bad. Like too big and too powerful is bad. So let's break up big and powerful things. Talk about how the economic style sort of recasts the arguments in a way that sort of ended up allowing weaker antitrust? In antitrust, you know, you have this long history, uh, you know, going back to the Sherman Act of 1890, that 
saw antitrust as as doing kind of multiple competing things, but often, like you said, was sort of oriented towards this big is bad idea. So, you know, in the 50s and 60s, you had really high levels of antitrust enforcement. Uh, You know, there were these court cases where they break up companies that, you know, because they hold like 5% of the supermarkets uh, in a particular region and say, oh, that's too big. You know, we we, we have to stop this tendency towards concentration. And you get a movement uh, against that, part of which comes from economics. And so you have a new set of experts who are kind of coming in and making the argument that this is a really bad approach, that often big companies are more efficient than smaller companies. Uh, It makes sense to have consolidation in a lot of cases, and that really we should be evaluating whether antitrust enforcement is needed based on whether uh, markets are operating efficiently, not just on whether there are large companies there. And so over the course of the 1970s, this sort of gets... um, written into case law, basically, by the Supreme Court. And it also is uh, implemented because of changes within the antitrust division and the FTC. So there's a lot of internal Mm -hmm. bureaucratic changes. But by the end of this period, you know, effectively, because the law has has changed, how the law is interpreted has changed, uh, efficiency becomes really the only thing that you can consider an antitrust policy. And so uh, it's not only that you're sort of considering that as, as a good thing and taking into account that, you know, big companies may be more efficient and maybe maybe that's good on its own, but that some of these older, broader concerns about everything ranging from, you know, concentrated economic power to the role of small business in civic life, right? Uh, you know, they have been part of the history of antitrust, or just sort of written off the table. Yeah, and efficiency of the market's basically being measured by prices, right? The idea here is if prices are still low for consumers, what's the problem? Right, <laughs> right? like the market's working, you know, however many participants are in it. I just think that's such a great illustration in so many levels. One, how the economic thinking kind of came to completely dominate this area, and two. Now we're really seeing the results of what happens if you only care about consumer prices. And I feel like we're seeing that, oh, a lot of those older, broader, more philosophical concerns were quite warranted. <laughs> and all those things they warned about are, are happening. And like right. small businesses are being wiped out and big businesses are using disproportionate political influence to malign effect. Like, Yeah, and if you think about about. Uh, you know, some of the, the the biggest companies right now, they're they're platform companies, right? They're yes. not they're not charging us anything to use them. You know, you don't have to pay to use Google. Exactly. But does that mean that it has a disproportionate, you know, does it have effects on innovation because it can buy up small companies and then, you know, kill their products? You know, well, that's a separate question. Right. Um, you know, does Facebook have effects on our political discourse that mm. are affected by the amount, the size that they are and the, the amount of reach that they have? You know, that's a separate question. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, some of these issues really have become more central in economics as well, because the focus on purely looking at prices is the measure of, you know, do we need antitrust intervention? You know, one thing that that really ignored was what are working conditions like, right? right. Uh, you've also got people working in all these companies. Um, and so, you know, there's been a lot of research and a lot of this has come from economics um, in the last few years over the extent to which corporate concentration has actually had downward pressure on wages. Uh, and so, so there are also new arguments for, well, let's, you know, let's consider that as a potential harm that antitrust might address. Right. So you have sort of this like cost benefit analysis, you know, you describe this so well in the books, economic style thinking is so facially plausible, right? Like who's going to, 
Right. Who's going to hear we should weigh costs and benefits and think, well, no, <laughs> that's wrong. Like, right. Like th- this is a, something that I feel like proponents of this style of thinking is a fuzziness they get away with. Like in a certain broad sense, yes, literally any decision-making procedure is on some level weighing costs and benefits. Like <laughs> on right. a generic level, of course, we're always doing that. But it's one thing to say that. And it's another thing to smuggle in a very specific sort of cost-benefit analysis that weighs certain very specific things and does not weigh certain specific other things, it becomes hard to notice the things that aren't on the table. You know what I mean? Right. And I think this is both a lot of the power of of this way of thinking is that it does have this perception of neutrality. Right. uh, That it appears like it doesn't contain values. Because again, like you said, I mean, who's going to argue against efficiency, you know, who's going to argue that we should never take costs into consideration at all. But, you know, what I would really argue is that these are not neutral tools um, and that we need to really be thinking about the values that they actually carry with them. And, you know, I think it's it's interesting, um, you know, sometimes you see, uh, particularly over the history of, of cost-benefit analysis, are there periodic conversations considering distributional effects, right? So right. when we're weighing the cost of something, is it going to, you know, is the cost going to fall on um, Bill Gates or is it going to fall on people in low-income communities? And you know, certainly you can adjust your cost-benefit analysis so that you are weighting effects on poor people or any particular group of people you want to protect more heavily. But the counterargument to that is always, oh, well, that would be political, Uh, Those decisions are better (laughs) left for the politicians. You know, yes, distribution is important, but this is cost-benefit analysis. We don't do that stuff. Yes, we don't do values. Exactly. And of course, uh, normal people do use values. I mean, all this is is so... um, God just brings to mind climate debates so, so much so. I mean, it's interesting to me. I feel like the economic style of thinking that you describe was at its absolute ascendance right when climate change sort of entered the picture, entered American politics. So climate change just got swept directly up into it. There was barely any other kind of argument, right? I mean, from the very beginning, you had William Nordhaus trying to find the optimal amount of carbon reduction based on efficiency, right? Like what's, we don't want to, we don't want to reduce one more, you know, ton than necessary Mm -hmm. because then we'd be overpaying so you do this sort of elaborate, quantified thing that looks like an equation, that looks like you're doing science, you know, and it comes out like, oh, that's the exact right price is $5 a ton. Right. And then everything we've learned since then, almost literally everything we've learned since then, shows how wildly wrong he was about a few things, how much he left out, just like how completely artificial the whole thing was, but it absolutely commanded, you know, the elites were absolutely uh, um, hypnotized by it. Yeah, yeah. And I think you see that, I mean, I think that's a really great point about the ascendancy of this and the climate debate. And honestly, I had never quite thought about it that way before. But, you know, when you think of climate policy, you know, from day one, it was always pretty much framed in terms of carbon tax or cap and trade. I mean, those were kind of the two big options on the table, (laughs) right? you know, and that was not something that was really a way people would have thought about the problem if it had been coming to attention in the 1970s. That was a relatively newer way of of thinking about it. And so from day one, that's kind of the main orientation. And more interventionist approaches are never really considered. You know, the idea of like 
the government doing technology forcing has, has already been abandoned by that point. And so, yeah, and so you really see it being constrained in those ways. And I think, you know, your point about Nordhaus again and, and, and creating models that give you the illusion of um, math being purely scientific, <laughs> right? Yeah, that they're, that they're objective because they're purely scientific. And also this kind of false idea that we can really optimize some of these things, yeah. that there is optimal warming that you can, you can try to achieve is a great example of this. But again, you know, I mean, and I'm sure you know this, right? But there, there are so many things that aren't built into those models that they don't really account for tail risk that, you know, they don't deal with the possibility that maybe economic growth isn't going to continue forever because perhaps the climate is going to collapse and that's going to affect <laughs> right. economic growth a little bit. Yeah. And so yes. again, you've got lots and lots of assumptions built in that kind of tend to protect the status quo yes, and that most people aren't going to be aware of or pay attention to. Yeah. The things I found out when I started really digging into those, uh, those sort of climate economic models just blew my mind. One is that, you know, perpetual economic growth is a premise. Yes. Not a conclusion. Yes. <laughs> right. And then they, and then it gets cited as a conclusion. Like, right. look, climate's not going to hurt us. The, the economy is going to grow forever. I'm like, well, that's, you put right. that in there. You put that in the, you put that in the model. Right. My, my other favorite is uh, discount rates. I don't know if you're familiar with oh, this. Oh, yeah. Actually, I say, I'm, I, one of my favorite pieces you ever wrote is uh, the discount rates with otters you wrote, like all the way <laughs> yes, back weirdly, in, uh, when you were writing for Grist. I love that. Weirdly persistent piece. <laughs> um, yeah, right. It's about how much do we value the future and and, and the notion that like, you can come up with, I mean, I've actually had economists argue this with me. I was like, well, it seems like that's a question of values that we should debate <laughs> you know, right. democratically. Like how much do we value future benefits? He's like, no, you just take the uh, discount rate that applies in markets, right? It applies in today's markets. Right. That demonstrates objectively how much people actually do value the future. Right. So that's an objective piece of information that we can put in. And I'm like, because the market is aggregating everybody's preferences about what right. you know, everybody's beliefs about what they think the discount rate should be. And so that's a, a useful representation in some way of what is morally correct. Yes. So faux, like faux objective, you know, and I'm like, well, do you think if you asked individual people, do you value like future generations of humans more than you value, say, the performance of your 401k? Right. Like, perhaps we should talk about this. Yeah, the more I think about it, the more this economic style of thinking just absolutely d has dominated in climate. One uh, one little side thing, but what might be kind of applicable here is you make a point of kind of distinguishing between macroeconomics and microeconomics in terms of what informs this style, because I think there's been a lot of popular talk and dialogue about macro economics about how to handle recessions and you know feds interest rates and all this kind of stuff but that's not really the style of thinking you're referring to it's drawn much more from microeconomics so, so say a little bit about what you mean by that basically for the purposes of what what you know what I'm doing at least is is I sort of just split the two and talk about them as entirely different things and of course you know they're both grounded in economics departments ultimately but sure. you know macroeconomics has different channels of policy influence, you know, it's got its own uh, institutions, you know, it's got influence in, in the Fed. And it's got, it's, you know, it's a much longer standing in some ways, because it does address these policy areas that, you know, that are very explicitly economic on the surface, right, economic growth, unemployment, inflation rates. Whereas, uh, you know, part of I think what, what makes the microeconomic story 
distinctive is that it can be applied to so many different types of policy. You know, mm-hmm. so, so it's not just something that is relevant in what we might think of as economic policy, but it is relevant in environmental policy, education policy, transportation policy, you know, pretty much any area where you are going to make policy. Or this can be a useful way to approach it and to think about it. And it's, it's framed very much sort of around incentives, right? I mean, that's kind of the core thing microeconomists are, are about. Like, what's the incentive structure and how do you alter the incentive structure, which, of course, is like broadly applicable to. Yeah. And if I think, right, cost benefits, trade-offs, choice incentives, uh, right, choice. trying to create rules that, that are going to uh, let markets uh, function effectively, like those are kind of the core concepts that I think about when I think about the style. And is it fair to say that the whole, uh, this seems to have passed, but a few years ago, there was this sort of flurry of talk about nudge, nudging, behavioral Uh. nudges, (laughs) and there's the famous uh, book about nudging. Is that, that seems to me like just a paradigm case here of kind of this microeconomic modeling being placed over daily life. Yeah, and I think... In some ways, right, like you said, I think that that moment has, has perhaps passed a little bit. <laughs> Let's hope so. But, um, you know, I, like I think of this when you think of what some of those nudges were trying to do, that you're trying to nudge people to do things like saving more money for retirement. And, you know, so some of those those early experiments that got traction were about you know, how can we, you know, if we if we sort of default people into saving money in their 401k versus making them check a box, they're more likely to do it. And that's going to you know, produce better outcomes. And, you know, a lot of times these kinds of questions are really missing fundamental issues like, can people actually afford to save money in 401ks? Is there any way that the amount that they save is ever going to be enough to allow them to retire plausibly? But Are 401ks the best uh, vehicle, right, for savings in the first place? Yeah. Yeah. And so I think it really focuses your attention on these very specific and, and small tweaks that, you know, point you even further away from thinking about bigger picture questions. Yeah. And it does also, that particular example really reveals the sort of centrality of choice, this idea among economists that choice is sort of the highest value, <laughs> you yeah. know, like the, the central value of all. And, you know, it seems to me like the 401k example is a great example is people it turns out liked it when they just got pensions and they didn't have to choose a bunch of stuff about it you know what i mean like i feel like we're finding out more and more that choice is not an unqualified good right and you know and i think this is like one of the central tensions you see um you know within these kinds of social policy debates uh over and over you know throughout the decades is this tension between, you know, do we want some kinds of social programs that are universal programs that just apply to everybody right. that you don't have to opt into, uh, that we're not going to means test? And you don't have to choose. There's not a bunch of choices. There's not a bunch <laughs> right. of choices, right. Or do we want to try to, you know, make programs that are cost effective, that give people more choice, that, you know, account for the fact that people might have, have different needs, um, but that also tend to add a lot of bureaucratic complexity to programs as well, right? And so, you know, I think, again, health insurance is is a great example of this, where over and over, there were sort of moments where, you know, the U.S. talked about having some kind of universal health insurance, but, you know, that was, that was always sort of pushed back in the name of figuring out, well, um, we should figure out how to, how to means test this because, 
you know, we don't want to pay for people who might be able to pay for it themselves. Or, you know, we want to structure it so that people are paying something so that they have skin in the game so that they don't, you know, spend more than than they absolutely have to. Right. And if they're making choices, they're somehow in, invested in economizing in a way that like a bureaucracy never could be. Exactly. Yes. And now here we are just like faced with bazillions of choices every day about our stupid 401ks and our health <laughs> insurance and everything else. And we're all miserable. Like, it's, you know, we all like we universally feel harried and anxious. Right. And uh, I feel like there's a kind of a tide of thinking uh, maybe moving away from that a little bit because, you know, it just turns out everything being a choice can be paralyzing in itself too. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely the case. Well, one question about this, I mean, we've sort of we've sort of hit on this obliquely a couple of times, but I mean, one of the critiques of the kind of the economic style of thinking is that it's often not even correct on its own terms, meaning even if you accept the idea that things should be formalized into a cost-benefit analysis and that we should maximize choice and options and all these things, even so, you know, they're leaving out a lot of human psychology. They're leaving out a lot of things that ought to be quantified in that, those calculations, you know, it's, it's incomplete even on its own terms. So I wonder if you think, I mean, this is something I've, I've heard a lot of times when I sort of, you know, I've been ranting and raving about cost-benefit analysis for years. And one of the things that people always say in response is, well, if you think like the value of another species existing, <laughs> not going extinct, right. is higher than is reflected in the equations, then just raise that value. Or if there's something that's not represented in the equation, put it in the equation. In other words, why not just use this style of thinking better in a way that better serves progressive goals? In other words, do you think it's possible for it to be rehabbed and used in a way that will serve progressives ultimately? Or is there something kind of intrinsic about it that's... Yeah, no, I think there's sort of two answers to that question, right? Because I think at one level, you know, I do think that we need tools to weigh costs and benefits and that some of those are going to be quantitative and that some kind of form of these tools are going to be put into play and are, are necessary and probably uh, pretty worthwhile. You know, the question then is, how do you make sure that they are expansive enough to include all the things that we want to include? And, and here's one of the one of the places where I think the nature of the tools just has a bias against um, including a lot of types of values, because the things that are easy to include are the things that, you know, that you can come up with some sort of market based way of measuring. Right. right. Um, and so something you talked about, like, well, what's the value of uh you know, what's the value of a species? How much would people be willing to, to pay for that? You know, well, I mean, you know, they try, try to do things like this, right? And so... Um, I know, I love the idea of just like average Joe on the street answering this survey question. <laughs> hmm, how much would I pay to preserve, you know, dodos? Hmm, buck, buck 50? Like, what, what does the answer to that question mean? There's been a lot of research on this, right? And, and people have tried to do this with survey methods and they don't work very well because people don't think that way and they don't know how to value yes. a, a species in the, in the abstract. And um, like one way that, that economists have approached these kinds of problems is something like the Grand Canyon as a, something that we value because it exists, right? Mm -hmm. um, that, that, that we're just 
glad it's out there. We don't want to destroy it. You know, well, you can come up with ways to measure the value of that by looking at how much people travel to get there, right? So how many people are traveling? How far? And what does that imply about how much value they attribute to this thing, which is interesting and and, and clever and, and gives you a way to put a number on it. But, you know, so many of the things that we actually care about, like the existence of species, don't lend themselves very well to that form of, of measurement. And so... Yes, and even if you do come up with numbers at the end of that process, I mean, come on. <laughs> right. At that, at that point, does anybody really think you've captured some sort of like quasi-scientific value right. in the world? You know, like what if I'm sitting at home never visiting the Grand Canyon and just valuing the shit out of it? Like that's, you know, I'm left, I'm left out of that equation. It's just, it, it starts to seem arbitrary, I guess. Well, and I think what often happens is you is people develop methods of measuring things that kind of more or less fit with people's moral intuitions, right? And so, mm-hmm. so you come up with a number for a formal set of reasons, but that number is only going to be adopted if it's kind of roughly in line with what people believe is appropriate anyway, <laughs> right? And right. I think you see this when people worry about um, uh, how do you value life? You know, what's the value of a human life? And there's different ways you could theoretically do that. Um, you know, one way historically that people did that was look at, uh, you know, expected future income. Uh, and that could be one way you value people's lives. But, you know, the problem with that is it suggests that people who are, say, retired or who right. don't work for whatever reason have no have no human value. Right. And so, you know, that was never a way that caught on very far, even though it's one logically consistent way to do it, because it's so far from our moral intuition to say, OK, you know, if you're over 65 or you're unemployed, you just have no your life has no value at all. Yes. Or then, and then you can just start specifying, making your model more and more and more complex. You know, you have like a, a clause about retired people, a clause about people with disabilities, you know. Right. But again, you're just, you, it seems faux at a, at a certain point. Well, one of the, I mean, one of the sort of really dangerous, insidious things about this is that a lot, a lot of these procedures, which when you pull them out and expose them to light and really think about them, seem quite obviously flawed and incomplete have been sort of over time insinuated into bureaucracies and procedures in such a way that they've just kind of created a path dependence and we just don't pull them out and examine them. Talk about that a little bit about, about how this economic style of thinking has been, you know, it's just insinuated into the whole U S federal bureaucracy such that things kind of proceed along those lines now automatically, even if no one's explicitly thinking that way. So much of this is about, um, I mean, it's about regulatory policy. It's about how, right, how the laws actually get enforced in practice, you know, through these regulations that are set in bureaucratic offices by people who are probably, you know, not necessarily particularly political, who are just doing this as relatively technical actors. And, and they develop conventions for, for how to measure things and how to count things. And so, you know, the conventions that a particular federal agency adopts, you know, the conventions that get accepted within, you know, a particular profession just start to become taken for granted. And then once they're, you know, once everybody's using the same assumptions, they become pretty hard to change. And so even though, you know, people may look at one assumption that's being made or another and say, well, that's kind of ridiculous, you know, we shouldn't do it that way. That becomes the the convention, and, and it's very hard to sort of just suddenly shift gears and say, okay, well, you know, we think we do care about distribution, and so we're gonna we're gonna add that on top of this now. 
Yes, you just get accretion <laughs> of more rules rather than any kind of rethinking. And, and and hasn't it been the case that, this is true in environmental law, that the Supreme Court has kind of tried to, well, the right definitely has, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. these sort of a red state AGs and all this, but try to sort of impose this kind of microeconomic style cost-benefit analysis thinking, even in areas of environmental law where the statute is pretty clear that they don't belong. Like, it's being shoved everywhere. Uh. (laughs) It's interesting because um, a lot of the history of this until, you know, the 21st century was really of the Supreme Court kind of holding back (laughs) the rise of cost-benefit analysis. So this was kind of coming from administrations and from the regulatory state. But when the Supreme Court would look at it, they would point back to the law and say, yeah, that's that's actually not what the law says. And (laughs) uh, and you, you know, you can't force agencies to count costs in this particular aspect of, of the law. But yeah, but I do think in more recent years that has eroded somewhat. Um, you know, an even even bigger issue, I think, is is the risk that the courts will stop allowing agencies to make these decisions relatively independently, which is historically what they've been able to do, right. and will say that that they have to be able to justify any decision to the courts, which would essentially place this in the hands of the courts rather than you know, give give the courts the upper hand relative to um, agencies that are doing the regulating. Yes, this is something we discussed in a previous podcast about the Supreme Chevron Court. Chevron doctrine, yeah. The, the EV, EPA cases, mm-hmm. <laughs> where um, in sharp contrast to last century, they're now going to say, you know, agencies are too sweeping. That's too big. You know, they, right. they, that's too big. Congress has to do that. Where are they getting too big? What's the line for too big? The criteria for too big? Who knows? Just lives in uh, Alito's head somewhere what counts as too much. But yeah, there's a real explicit turn toward restraining government from doing anything sweeping and not narrowly economically tailored like this. And I think it also kind of points back to the way that economics can point to policies that are going to move things in a more progressive direction, or it can point to things that are going to move policy in a more conservative direction. And, you know, whether it is actually put into practice is in part going to depend on the larger political environment, right? That the, if the Supreme Court is dominated by people who have a conservative agenda, they're going to be less interested in allowing EPA or whatever federal agency to you know, use its own economics to make its own um, regulatory decisions and more interested in kind of shifting the the balance of power back to themselves. Yes. As we say, it's kind of a one-way ratchet right. that seems to be still underway. So as a final question, I kept you for a long time, but this is in a sense to me the most important question and maybe the most difficult to answer, which is I feel like in recent years, and again, my experience is mostly with the climate movement, but I can say like within the climate movement in the last, call it decade, there's been a real explicit turn away from the economic style of thinking and its sort of manifestations in, as you said, the obsession with taxing or cap and trade or just the obsession with market mechanisms. Mm-hmm. So there's a real sense in the climate movement that there's a rejection of you know, an exclusive focus on market mechanisms. There's more embrace of industrial policy. There's more embrace of sort of ambition and social justice and all this kind of stuff. And I wonder sort of two things. One, 
do you think that's a broader phenomenon on the left in the U.S. right now, that there's some sort of general turn away from the economic style of thinking? And then two, is there something like a coherent alternative on the table? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. And that, right, that is the hard one, right? Um, I think I mean, to the first part of that, you know, absolutely, that's a that's a broader phenomenon. I think you see you, you saw bits of this even in the years after the financial crisis, right? So this has a little bit of a longer history to it. But, you know, especially since, um, you know, the election of, of, of Trump and in the last, you know, five years, say, really, you know, much more energy uh, coming from the left coming from, uh, you know, young people, and, and, and really people who are kind of disillusioned with the status quo don't particularly believe that an economic approach to policy problems is going to be the right one or going to be enough and are, you know, interested in and, and willing to entertain, you know, much bigger or much different kinds of policy options. So, yeah, I absolutely think it's a, a broader trend. But, you know, is it going to emerge into a coherent alternative? I mean, I think this is really interesting because I think there are a lot of efforts to do that right now. Um, and it's kind of still remains to be seen how much those are going to coalesce into a single framework. You know, one movement I often think about, you know, one intellectual movement is, you know, I don't know if you follow this at all, but in law schools, there's this law and political economy movement, which is emerged kind of in opposition to the law and economics movement, which has been very, very influential, and which is trying to create, you know, a new framework for thinking about legal questions that is centered on economic justice centered on uh, environmental and racial justice that is much more attentive to power as being a central uh, factor that should be considered. And, and it thinks about economic questions in a very different way. So what these alternatives, I think, lack at this point is that, you know, the economic style is, is, is kind of tidy, right? It's a mm. very neat, conceptually coherent approach to thinking about problems. Always a huge part of its appeal, I think, for sort of like a certain kind of left brain person. It just has a clarity and sharp edges. It does. And clear, it's very appealing. Clear answers. You know, I, get it. <laughs> I wish life, you know, like I wish life were like that. Right. But yeah, so so for me, that's the interesting. I mean, that's going to be the interesting question is, can we create a coherent intellectual alternative that that maybe take some of what's best about what economics does and is able to do, you know, adds in other kinds of concepts that aren't really, you know, that we're not really able to address within those frameworks. And then is use that to sort of generate new kinds of uh, ideas about policy and new approaches to politics that actually, uh, you know, can have the potential to, to usher in a different kind of political era. I mean, one place to go would just be back to liberalism, right? Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Know? But that, that doesn't, it seems unsatisfactory for a number of reasons one is that it's it's been so relentlessly strawmanned and run down now by both sides of the aisle right. for so many decades that it's kind of like has a terrible reputation and feels kind of tattered and discredited but it's not like what would a new thing be it's it's not clear you know it's like people have kind of grabbed back onto socialism but that's you know, that doesn't seem super satisfying either. Like, it's really hard to see how that would take shape, especially against, as you say, these sort of like path dependence now that we've built into the U.S. government, these these rules and procedures and styles of the agencies. It's so built in now. One of the points you make that I was really struck by is, is that this is mostly a phenomenon of democratic elites 
sort of the you know the, the whiz kids mm-hmm. <laughs> and in a sense the sort of democratic masses were never super on board with this at all and they ended up you know you ended up with pretty frequently kind of the democratic elites and the masses at odds so i wonder you know it's one thing to say the masses are kind of turning against this the kind of democratic voters are the elites turning against it or is it still just a sort of fixed in the kind of harvard yale Rand world as it ever was. On the one hand, I mean, I think that there's a lot of ways in which intellectual movements kind of follow what's going on in the world, right? You know, Mm. that this book is about, like, the way that I'm telling the story is about economists, a particular way of thinking about problems having influence. But, you know, why does this stuff actually come to influence at a particular moment? You know, it's because the social conditions are sort of ripe for it. Mm. So I think that if we're going to see some kind of coherent intellectual movement, um, emerge that, you know, provides it provides an alternative way of thinking about problems, that really that's going to start with grassroots change and follow that, right, rather than rather than driving it. And so I think, you know, the more that you've got social movements, you've got grassroots activism, you've got energy from, you know, from people who haven't been involved in politics before. And that is actually the thing that leads people to elect people who are more progressive, who are open to other kinds of ideas. I think the intellectual frameworks will follow from that. I think there are people out there doing that kind of work and it just kind of needs the right moment for it to come together and create some kind of synthetic alternative, you know, but I think, I think that's where it's going to have to come from because um, in spaces of power and in elite institutions, you know, this is kind of still the default way of, of, of thinking about problems, right. And that it, it takes a little bit of effort to, to dislodge that it's easy to fall back into it. Uh, it's a way you show that you're capital S serious to all the other <laughs> elites, right? You, right? you you economize whatever you're trying to say, and then you mock lefties. Those right. are the kind of the two <laughs> the two ways of establishing your cred. Well, this is fascinating. Thank you so much uh, for writing this book because this really gives me a, a, a vocabulary and a kind of a, a conception to put around this thing that I've felt for so long of this sort of frustrating phenomenon of people who gain power in democratic circles, just trying to be little mini economists and trying to like kiss up to economists and desperately seeking the approval of economists rather than seeking the approval of say democratic voters or the people being affected by policy, you know, just this, I, I, I've felt this and heard this and seen this around me for so long, and this really puts a great vocabulary to it. So thanks so much for writing it, and uh, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. It was uh, great to talk to you. Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.